G'day everyone, how are you? Was it just me? Um, Jamie, can I give that to you, mate? We give out iPads at this church, did you know that? It could be you, check under your chair. No, don't do that. Was I the only one crying during the singing? Oh my goodness, this is one of the few times I was happy to sit up the front, my eyes were bawling. Whoever chose those songs, you. Oh my goodness, got me right on the fields. Uh, if we haven't met before, I'm Dave, I'm one of the pastors here at church. Um, I want to ask you a question, and I know it's a question that might potentially be embarrassing, but nonetheless, did anyone here see the Megan and Harry interview with Oprah? Did anyone see it? What did you think? True, false? No, don't say anything. What did you thought? I saw it, and a few things came to mind. One, isn't it nice of the royal family to constantly present themselves to us as the worst family in the Commonwealth? And so that means for us, we're just constantly going, you know what? We've had our bumps, our ups and downs, our swings and roundabouts. But it's not that bad, is it? The second thing is, to be honest, not to make light of the allegations or anything like that. There were said some serious ones, all those kind of things. But at least no one cares enough about my family to put us on television and to hear about all our dramas. We've had plenty. Oh my goodness, what a... What a shocking thing. Now, whatever you thought about uh, Princess Harry and, no, Princess Meghan and Prince Harry, <laughs> how come my rehearsed jokes never get as many laughs as my accidental jokes? <laughs> but whatever you think about them, uh, it was superb drama. It was pretty good two hours of television, actually, but there was one thing above all else uh, that I appreciated that I found actually a bit um, noteworthy, and that wasn't Meghan and Harry, but actually the interviewer, Oprah. Now, I swear you to secrecy, don't tell a soul but I'm a bit of a closet Oprah fan, I've got to be honest. It's not a philosophy, it's not a theology, it's nothing like that. I just think she seems like a really nice woman. Have you heard her backstory from abject poverty to the richest woman in America, and a mate, and I think she's a good interviewer, she gets a lot out of people, but it's something she said in the interview that might have slipped under the radar, if you weren't paying that much attention. There's actually profoundly revealing about the philosophy she espouses, and actually many people hold that you know. It's actually in the cultural air that we breathe. Let me read for you. She's in a one-on-one moment with, with Megan, and she said this line, how do you feel about the palace hearing you speak your truth today? Your truth. Not the truth, your truth. And she didn't say it by accident, because Oprah has a long line of form regarding uh, this term and, and this way of thinking about life and about truth. In 2017 at the Golden Globe Awards, in the middle of the Me Too movement about allegations of sexual assault, she said this um, staggering line, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. What's Oprah saying? Well, what she's saying is that the old way of viewing truth. It's in a binary way, and that word can be a bit confusing, but it just means having two options. In other words, right, wrong, true, false, black, white, yes, no. That old way of viewing truth has gone, and it's gone intentionally because it's bad. It's a narrow, rigid way of thinking. It's rude, it's uncomfortable. And the end result of that is that whilst your truth and my truth might be different, indeed contradictory things, well, as long as we don't hurt one another, the sacred cow of the 21st century, as long as we don't hurt one another, 
well, who cares? It's the best way to actually view life. And can I say, this is so embedded in the cultural life that we live, in the cultural air that we breathe, that actually, when you consider how you view truth, you'll actually discover, hold on, I kind of view a similar philosophy. I kind of hold to that as well. Because it's one thing, isn't it? to have your own truth that you believe in. But it's another thing entirely to look at someone else and say, you're wrong. And I don't mean on Facebook. It's very easy on Facebook to tell people they're wrong, okay, because you don't really meet them. But in real life, saying you're wrong, seems very narrow, very rude, very uncomfortable, far more attractive and loving and kind, surely, to have different truths. And yet as attractive as this way of thinking is, and as prevalent as it is in our society, it's in stark contrast to the way that truth is presented in the Bible. The Bible is always, always, always confrontingly binary. Yes, no, two options. And believe it or not, the person who speaks this way more than anyone else, despite what you might think, is Jesus. Jesus makes direct, polarizing claims. Follow, flee. Light, darkness. Life, death. Truth, lie. Now, we've seen that already in John 1 to 3, as we've been looking at for the last six or seven weeks or so, that Jesus himself and the way he speaks, and also in God's word and the reflections it has upon the life of Jesus, is incredibly black and white, particularly around one issue above all others. And that is the issue of Jesus' identity. Jesus either is who he says he is, he either is what's said about him in the Bible, as has been claimed, or he's not. It's either true or it's a lie. Jesus himself doesn't allow us a maybe or a maybe not. Well, if you like, if you don't like. It's not just his truth. The claim is for the truth. And how you consider this truth actually has enormous consequences. Enormous consequences on your life here and now, but also enormous consequences on your eternity. Not just that, though. Enormous eternity-shaping consequences on the lives of every single person you've ever met. Today's passage that we've just had read for us wonderfully by Dawn, thank you very much, contains two testimonies. You know what a testimony is? A declaration of truth that someone gives. Two testimonies which make clear for us not just who Jesus is, but also what it means for our lives and the lives of everyone. And that's mainly what we're going to focus on today. But can I also make it clear, can I also say that while we are going to be confronted with big truths in these two testimonies, right in the middle of these declarations is a beautiful, staggering, inspiring picture of humility. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that kind of appears from our culture's viewpoint anyway, contradictory. Because generally, people who hold very black and white binary viewpoints are thought of as proud or arrogant. But we're going to look at the life and the teaching and and the thoughts of a man who is as binary as possible, as black and white as possible in his thinking. And yet who displays true greatness for us in his staggering 
humility. So first of all, let me set the scene. Grab your Bibles out if you, if you have them there. John chapter 3, the, the last section from verse 22 onwards. So far in John's gospel, we've been introduced to several different people, several uh, different personalities, but there's been two major personalities who've come to the fore. Firstly, Jesus, and no prizes if you guess that, okay? Obviously, it's the story of Jesus. So yes, Jesus is the major personality in John's gospel, but also you might have noticed, and it is a little bit odd, that the other major personality presented so far in John's gospel is John the Baptist. For what it's worth, you might know this already, but even though this book is called John, that's a different John than John the Baptist. So when I just refer to John the Baptist, that's John the Baptist. When I just refer to John, I'm talking about the author here. The two personalities revealed the most and spoken about the most in John's gospel are Jesus and John the Baptist. What we've learned so far in John chapter 1 and 2 is that John the Baptist arrived on the scene before Jesus. We know from the other gospels that he's actually Jesus' cousin his elder cousin. And John the Baptist had accrued his own following, his own disciples who listened intently to his teaching. He was incredibly popular. And it's funny that we kind of downplay popularity and its power and influence on our own lives. But I want to put to you that having influence, having power over people is the most intoxicating and attractive way that you can possibly live. It's what drives many people in life, the idea of having power and influence, popularity. John had that until Jesus. What we read is that Jesus arrived and Jesus became incredibly popular as well, certainly very provocative. In fact, even more popular than John. And what we read in the first few verses is that this led to a feeling of jealousy among the disciples of John the Baptist. Look at verse 26. I'll read this for you. John's disciples, the disciples, the Baptist disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. The Baptist's disciples were upset. They give their motivation of their upset as being on behalf of John. They saw Jesus as a rival, stealing away John's popularity and followers. What's fascinating actually about this sentence though is what they say in the middle. Look what he says. They say, Rabbi, the man who is with you, the one you testified about. What had John the Baptist testified already about Jesus? Well, have a look at chapter 1, verse 29. Look, the Lamb of God is what he says. Verse 34, there's God's chosen one, is what John says about Jesus. Verse 36, look, the Lamb of God, again, he testifies again and again and again that Jesus is the one sent by God. And yet, John the Baptist's disciples had heard this testimony, yet they were still jealous. Why? Well, the word that we're looking for the word that probably best encapsulates their motivation is spiritual pride. They were proud because of the man they'd associated themselves with. They probably accorded themselves all kinds of insights and, and staggering profundity because of the, the way they'd attached themselves to John. And because of that, they were jealous. There's no indication they were particularly wicked or evil. They just ordinarily, as simple as you like, jealous. So the question is, what will John the Baptist say in response to this provocation? Is John the Baptist an Aussie? 
is you're going to engage in tall poppy syndrome. You know, you get out the axe as soon as someone goes well and you chop them down as quickly as you can. Well, actually, he's getting all of his followers because he keeps offering them free wine. Actually, he keeps offering them fish and chips all the time. That's how he gets them. Is that what he's going to say or is it going to be something different? What does John the Baptist reveal to us about who he is in particular in relation to Jesus? What will he say? But not just that, not what is his truth, what is the truth? Well, let's have a look at testimony number one, verse 27 to verse 30. Let me read out to you verse 27 and 28 of John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I have said, I am not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. John's response, and probably it's said with a mix of kindness and also a hint of exasperation, is that, guys, I've told you this before. I'm not the chosen one. I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. I've been sent here in order to pave the way for him. That's my modus operandi. That's my mission. To clarify it further, he gives an illustration. And I want you to pay particular attention to this illustration he gives in verse 29 and 30. Because this illustration actually involves you. If you are a Christian here today, you are in this illustration. He tells an illustration about a bride and a bridegroom. Now just take note for a second. The word bridegroom is just an old-fashioned way of saying groom. Did you know that? Oh, it took me years to work that out. Who is this bridegroom character? It's just the groom. Oh, it turns out that was just me. But anyway, from here on in, I'm just going to read bridegroom as groom. I'm going to do that for you if secretly you were confused as well. Let me read out this uh, illustration. The bride belongs to the groom. The friend who attends the groom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the groom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. What does this mean? Well, who's who in the illustration? Well, Jesus is the groom. And the illustration states for us that God has sent the groom to be joined together with the bride. Now, who's the bride? Well, we know from other illustrations in the Bible, using this exact same language, that the bride is the church. And by church, we don't mean a denomination. We don't mean a building. We mean God's people gathered together. Us. Who is the groom? Jesus. Who is the bride? Christian people gathered together with Jesus. Who is the friend then? The one who is awaiting and full of joy when it occurs. That's John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever been married before. Now, there's two guarantees when it comes to to weddings. Not marriages necessarily, but certainly when it comes to weddings. Number one, there are two people who will get married at this point. There are two people who will get married. Number two, those two people will be stressed out. That has pretty much been synonymous with my experience of weddings, particularly my own wedding. I must confess. My own wedding was great fun. It was a great party. It was a wonderful time, but it was also very stressful. I've got two children from a previous relationship. I was married and divorced as a a non-Christian. 
They were coming to the wedding. I was super stressed. If you've got a blended family, you know what that's like. I was super stressed out about them. One of my other groomsmen did turn up. Shows you how popular I was. I was asking people who wouldn't even turn up. We can't get a Bible reader here. That's no drama. I couldn't get a groomsman. I was begging people, would you come? They said, no. We had drama with the reception venue, on and on and on. But into this stress came this man. Now, it later turns out that this picture of my best man, Rob, is when he was releasing a fart uh, in the middle of the ceremony. He confirmed that for me later. This is my best man, Rob. And if they were handing out awards for best, best men, Rob would get it. 10 times out of 10. As soon as he arrived on the wedding day, he saw that I was peaking, okay, that I was absolutely stressing out. He calmed me down. My kids were there. They were upset. They were kind of stressed out as well. He calmed them down. Um, Sam and I were talking on the phone. He calmed Sam down. He got to the reception venue before anyone else, made sure everything was well set. He actually paid for the suits that we were wearing as well. In short, he made sure that the main man, me, was looked after. But hold on a second. I want you to imagine a different scenario. I want you to imagine that, in fact, just at this moment, as I'm waiting anxiously for Sam. Look how dark my hair is in that photo, honestly. Those were the days before marriage. Um, look... I can't say the joke at 10.30 when Sam's here, so I'm just going to save it for you guys. At this moment, imagine as Sam is coming down the aisle and we commence the vows, just before I say, I do or I will, Rob pushes me out of the way and I will instead. Now that would be incomprehensible, wouldn't it? Or just imagine in the, in the speeches... He decides not to give a speech about me and Sammy, but just to give a speech about himself. I've actually heard best men do that kind of thing, by the way. But would that make him a good best man? No, it would make him a horrible best man. Why? Because the day wasn't about him. The day was about Sammy and me. Look again at verse 27. John is telling his followers, I am not the main man. Who is? Jesus is. And John the Baptist, as incredibly popular and powerful and authoritative as he was, he was here for the express purpose of playing second fiddle. So the thought of him being the rival for the attention of Jesus is utterly absurd. It doesn't make any sense because it's all about Jesus, not him. Now, there's two things I want you to note uh, from John's testimony. That's the end of John the Baptist's testimony there. There's two things that I, I want us to grasp hold of and walk away with. The first one that I want you to take note of very deeply is that this little illustration of, of the bride and the groom. Now, it wasn't John's intention in doing this. Yet one of the consequences of this illustration is that it points all of us to an incredible life-changing reality about Jesus. What is it? Jesus has come to offer us relationship. He came to restore a perfect relationship between God and his people, us. This imagery, a groom and his bride, Jesus and us, 
It's repeated again and again in the New Testament. It's a staggering picture, dear friends, a life-changing picture of not just how God feels about you, he loves you. No matter where you've been, what you've seen, no matter what your weeks look like, God loves you. But also an incredible reminder for what he has done in order to bring us to himself. This groom died for his bride. It's one thing for a groom to swagger around and say, I'll take a bullet for my wife. This groom died for his bride. So we could be reconciled with him. I wonder how that makes you feel. A few years ago, I was with a, a young man, um, and I had the privilege of being in the room uh, when he became a Christian. He, he knew about spiritual things for a while, had been tussling and wrestling with them. But he was utterly convinced he couldn't shake the feeling that because of his past, which had been a terrible one, Lies, anger, thievery, <laughs> cowardice, that he was too far gone for God, that there's no way he could ever be right with God. And I had the privilege of seeing him get it. Lights turn on. Jesus died for me because I'm not good enough. Not because I'm perfect, because I'm not. Talk about tears. The word to describe his response is joy. Look at verse 29. John the Baptist has the privileged position, privileged indeed, of being able to observe the bride and the groom, Christ and his people. So what emotion does that well up in him? It is not jealousy, but joy. Why? Because he knows the truth. That Jesus has come to rescue a sinful people. And so we have John give his job description, point people to Jesus. Point people to the reality of the restored relationship with the Father. Not your truth, my truth. The truth. But there's something else here that I want you to notice uh, in the response of John the Baptist. After the wedding illustration, in chapter 3, verse 30. And if you're a tattooed sort of person, this could be a good neck tattoo, chapter 3, verse 30. Um, I know a guy. I'll put you in touch. John the Baptist proclaims probably what is one of the greatest expressions recorded in human history, certainly one of the most fitting descriptions of what a Christian lifetime should actually look like. Chapter 3, verse 30. Let's read it. Not together, I'll read it, you read it in your minds. He must become greater. I must become less. I actually prefer the way one of the other translations puts it. He must increase. I must decrease. When John says, I must decrease, what he means is not that he shrinks physically. But his reflection upon himself, as he thinks about himself in his heart and soul and mind, he is praying, he is proclaiming his desire to think less of himself and about himself less. Lord, help me to dwell not on me, but rather that my view of Jesus may increase, that he increases in value. Not so he's bigger than reality, 
but that my reality catches up to the enormity of the reality of the size and significance of Jesus. You know, elsewhere in the Bible, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, John, uh, Jesus um, proclaims that John the Baptist is the greatest human being who ever lived. The greatest. And on a sort of a surface level, uh, there's enough evidence there to say, totally, he had the greatest calling. He was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, he had the greatest responsibility, not just to prophesy about a future Messiah, but to actually live at the same time and point to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not in his roles and responsibilities that John displays true greatness, is it? It's not his achievements, accomplishments, or attainments. It's not in his popularity, his power, or his prestige. It's not the amount of people he baptized. His true greatness is found in his humility. Humility is well defined as thinking not just about yourself less, but less of yourself. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, you don't have to read the Bible for very long to be confronted with the explicit binary black and white call for all followers of Jesus to strive towards being humble. Jesus says itself, himself frequently, not a your truth moment, it's a be humble moment. Humility for Christian people is presented as not just a wonderful character trait, but a crucial understanding, because it's impossible to be a Christian unless you humble yourself before God. How can you come before God and ask for mercy to be rescued by what Jesus has done if you don't think you need rescue at all? You must be humble to be a Christian. And yet the truth is, as much as we would like to achieve it as our Christian walks continue, it's always hard to do. In fact, it's, it's incredibly difficult. Because it's, a tr- it's the sort of thing that if you spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to do, you start patting yourself on the back and going, look how humble I am, and you ruin it. It's incredibly difficult to achieve. The opposite of humility, which was displayed earlier by John the Baptist's disciples, is pride. And pride is well defined, not just in self-love, although yes, not just in self-righteousness, though yes, but also in self-dependence. Now, pride, am I wrong, is a much easier character trait to pull off. We don't have to work very hard at being proud. Now, we see pride everywhere. It comes really in two types, loud and quiet. The loud type is very easy to spot, proud, boastful, arrogant, brash. You guys remember Anthony Mundine? He just retired. Gee, his press conferences were fun, weren't they? I am the greatest. No, you're not. I am the greatest. It struck a nerve with Australians. We didn't like it. In Australia, we don't like that kind of behavior. We're far more prone to the quiet pride, the silent pride that silently, quietly looks down on other people that silently, quietly compares yourself favorably with other people, the type that refuses to ever take any responsibility for your actions, that's always saying inside your head that little voice, it's not me, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. The type that leads you to assess yourself, to assess your spirituality, to assess your morality and think, I'm, I'm okay, I'm good enough, I'm good on my own. Now, we see pride everywhere uh, in our culture But also, tragically, we see it within the church of God. 
within church and churches. And unfortunately, you don't have to look far to see it because entire denominations have actually been built and structured around it. We know that's true because the moment that man replaces Jesus at the centre of a church is the moment that human pride has eclipsed its purpose to glorify God. It glorifies man, not God. We see it in, in individual churches, the type of churches where the pastor, the minister, the priest, whoever it is, claims some sort of special relationship with God. I've got a special conduit with God. I will pass on what he tells me to you. I've got special insight. We need to look out for that. You need to look out for it here. Keep us accountable. If you visit other churches, if you move, you need to be very aware. What is this church about? Who's at the centre, the pastor or Jesus? The truth is, though, that... I see it in far more ordinary ways within the church, ways that are very similar to John the Baptist's ways and ways that are actually, tragically, very personal. I see it in me all the time. I told you that story about being in the room when my friend became a Christian. I rang up some friends on the way home from, from that interaction and I told them. We all rejoiced and we prayed the truth was there was a part of me that wasn't calling for that reason. I was calling so they would know I was involved in someone's conversion. I felt a hint which became a very large emotion of pride. I was proud of my involvement. And you might think, of all the things to be proud of, yet we all have our little things, don't we? As the years went on, as they've gone on, as I've been involved in more ministries, well, I keep kept and keep falling into it. When things would go well, I would humbly drop it into a conversation. Oh, I can do the dance. Don't you worry about that. The faux, well, not me, all praise be to, you know, but me. That thing, my goodness, I'm fluent in being able to do that kind of thing, the lip service of giving the credit to God. And yet this sin is not insignificant. It's deeply significant. Why? Well, two reasons. One, this sin, like all others, is both attractive and addictive and also deeply unsatisfying. It's never enough. So you're always looking for more. I didn't get enough recognition. Not enough people admire me. Not enough people respect me. It's not enough. It's not enough. But the bigger and deeper, more tragic consequence of this is what is at the root cause of spiritual pride. It's theft. It's theft from God. Look at verse 27. Look how John replies with kindness but with directness to his disciples. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. John understands and tells us very plainly that God is the one in control of all things. And so we need to call a spade a spade and get to the heart of the issue to claim credit for what God has done is to steal his praise, his glory, his honour. It's to put yourself into the position of God to claim credit reserved only for him. And my dear friends, this is not the path we are to take. 
It doesn't matter if it's your truth for you. It's not the pathway to take. It's not the path that leads to true greatness. It's a path that leads to disgrace. And it's not a path any Christian person should be content to live and walk on. Because to be a Christian, to become a Christian, is to humble yourself before God and cry out for salvation. And to continue to be a Christian is to daily and hourly repent to our great God for our failures and cry out for salvation. So what are we to do? Have a look. John tells us, chapter 3, verse 30. I must decrease, he must increase. We fight spiritual pride by both making little of ourselves, but also making much, much, much of Jesus. Constantly, daily, hourly. Spiritual humility is not found in dwelling on yourself, but in dwelling, discipline yourself to think, to pray, to constantly learn more about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. To grow up spiritually is to grow down in your own estimation, to look up to God without hesitation and to constantly come to him for help. So how do we do that? I must decrease. God, help me decrease. He must increase. Help my mind, my soul, my heart to be captured with Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves at the end of of the first testimony. And I hope it's a helpful one, powerful, profound, helpful. It helps us understand how John, the greatest human being besides Jesus who ever lived, views himself in the light of Jesus. The greatest views himself as the smallest. But what's also important to understand is that this testimony right here at the end of John chapter 3 has been put there intentionally by John the author. It's not chronological in that sense. This is an interaction that's happened that John has inserted in to John's gospel. Why is he doing that? Well, it's the first half of a bigger picture. You see, this interaction, this testimony by John is pointing us, as John's purpose is in all things, to a bigger picture, a picture being painted of Jesus. John finishes his testimony by saying, Jesus must increase. And then John, the author, writes out for us in the second testimony exactly how big Jesus is to increase in our minds. The call is to make Jesus big, significant, and important in your life. Why? Because Jesus is big. He is significant. He is important. But more than that, it's because your clarity or your confusion around who Jesus is, who you say Jesus is for yourself, has enormous consequences. Whichever way on the fence you land. Come to verse 31 to verse 35. Now, this second testimony uh, is deep. It's rich. 
There's much in here for us to understand. It's kind of like a, a resume of Jesus in one sense, but a very deep one that, that proclaims for us incredible truths about Jesus. It's a word picture of the identity of Jesus. There's, there's much in there, but I want us to hold on to two truths and a consequence about the identity of Jesus we have revealed in these words. Come to verse 31, first of all. Listen to, to what John the author writes. The one who comes above, from above, is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Now, the one who comes from the earth in that word picture is John the Baptist. And John, the author, writes that Jesus is the one who comes from above. What's the point being painted for us? As great as John the Baptist is as a man, he's just a man. But Jesus, he is both man and God. He's not an ordinary man. He is from above all men. He's from above the earth and the universe. He is from the heavens. He is the Son of God. Secondly, verse 32, this one who is above all, Jesus, testifies to what he has seen and heard. What does that mean? In other words, when Jesus speaks, when he speaks to you and I, ordinary People like us about life and death, about morality or mortality, about eternity. He's not making it up. It's not like just you and me offering opinions to one another. Jesus knows it to be absolutely true. Why? Because he is the son of God. But also, verse 33, Jesus speaks the words of God. And what that means is if you accept what God has said, you accept what Jesus says. If you accept what Jesus says, you accept what God has said. And if you don't believe Jesus, then you are calling him and God a liar. So we have these two themes emerge from these verses. One, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is above all. Two, Jesus speaks the words of God. These are claims of truth of fact. These aren't claims that you need to think about a lot and go, oh, I'm going to imagine this into existence. This is existence. This is reality. And the consequences of these realities and truths matter. They matter deeply. They matter deeply for you because they're about you. You see, these truths about Jesus don't just present for us the truth about Jesus. They relate to the very core of your existence. They also relate to the very core of the existence of everyone you know. How do you respond to these claims about Jesus? Well, the consequences matter enormously because the consequences of ignoring him are so terrifying. John chapter 3, verse 30, oh, a verse that inspires inspiration amongst Christians. But allow me read, to read out for you John chapter 3, verse 36, a verse which should inspire joy but also terror in the hearts of Christians and non-Christians. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. Believe, life. Reject, 
wrath. This verse proclaims one of the greatest truths of human existence. And yet we need to also grapple with the horrible news it contains before we understand the good news. What this verse tells us is that every single one of us deserves God's wrath. Every single person you've ever met has rejected God and as a consequence deserves hell. It's important we understand hell at this moment. Many of us have believed the kind of throwaway line that hell is the absence of God. But that's not true. The wrath of God is the fires of hell. And this passage makes it very clear to us that if anyone rejects Jesus as the Son of God, rejects his offer of eternal life, they will face God's wrath. And my dear friends, it is a horrible thing indeed to face the wrath of the God of the universe. Now maybe at this point you're thinking, whoa, whoa, that's a bit much. I've never murdered anyone. I'm not involved in terrorism or anything like this. What do you mean I deserve God's wrath? I used to think hell was reserved for people who were truly awful, murderers, abusers, that kind of thing. Yeah, how does the Bible put it? Who's going to hell? Who's facing God's wrath? Deeper than that, what makes people face God's wrath? Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath remains on people as a result of rejecting Jesus. I want you to imagine uh, that you've got a child. And this child is, well, I'll let you be the judge. Okay. They go to school and they top every single subject they do. English, French, geography, maths, you name it, they're the top of the class. Not just that, though. Sporting ability. They can bowl with both arms. Okay, they play basketball, netball, cricket, football. The real football, not soccer. I mean, they're a good kid. So he said, not soccer. But they're a surfer, everything. They're popular. They're in the school musical. Every single thing. They constantly shine on you what a good parent you are. Let me ask you, not a trick question. Let me ask you, if you were to assess this child, would you say this is a good child? Yes. I'm just getting started. Because when this child gets home, he comes through the door, or she comes through the door, and she doesn't throw her bag to the side, but actually picks her bag up and hangs it up on the coat rack. <laughs> then hangs up all their siblings' bags on the coat rack. <laughs> they get out a mop and start mopping the floor. <laughs> they get out a knife and start chopping carrots. They put on the dinner. They go upstairs. They do their homework. They help their siblings with their homework. They even clean the toilet. At night time, they take themselves off the bed. You don't have to remind them to put the light off. They do it at 8.30. Let me ask you a question. Is this a good child? Yes. But there is one aspect of their character I hadn't revealed to you. You see, from the moment they're born until now, this child has never, ever, ever spoken to you. They have never acknowledged even your existence. They come through the door after school and you say, darling, great to see you. And they walk straight past you. They grab the mop from you and they start mopping. And you're like, darling, thank you. And they mop 
around you. At night time, you tuck them up in bed, you go to kiss them and say, I love you. And they turn the other way. Let me ask you, is this still a good child? You can impress in all manner of righteousness. You can behave better than anyone has ever behaved. But when it comes to the one thing that matters to God, relationship, if that fails, what have you got? You've got nothing. The truth of our lives is that every single one of us has been in that position. We've rejected God. We've treated him in all manner of shameful ways. We've ignored him. We've tried to manipulate him. We've tried to use him. We minimize him. or We come to him only when we want something. And living this way has consequences. It means that when we die, we will face God's wrath. And I understand that's a hard topic to hear. And yet it's absolutely necessary that we grapple with its truth. When you die, if you haven't accepted Jesus, you are going to hell. That hell is God's wrath and it's focused at you. On our own, that situation is hopeless. Our situation is helpless. But verse 36 is also containing not just terrifying, but amazing news as well. Look at it. The first lines. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Into our hopelessness and helplessness stepped Jesus. Talk about humility. Jesus was above all. He created all. And yet he stepped down onto earth as a man. And he didn't go to a palace. He didn't go to the White House. He didn't go to Kirribilli House. He didn't do anything like that. He went to a stable. He was brought up in the family of uneducated Palestinian Jews in the first century. Not only that, when he was around 33 years old, he humbled himself by walking to the cross. Why did he do that? Because on the cross, Jesus took God's wrath for us. When he was crucified, he died so we can be forgiven. And what that means is that all of us deserve God's wrath for what we've done, and yet all of us can be forgiven because our wrath has been taken by Jesus. What must we do? Stop rejecting Jesus. Instead, accept what he's done. Repent and believe. That's the truth presented for us. And that's the truth of life. Now, I want to finish today quickly with two challenges. Challenges of humility and truth. The first one is for you if you're a Christian here today. If you're a Christian here today, um, I want to challenge you to pursue humility. Now, how do you do it? Well, we must do as John did. It's not just about thinking less about yourself. It's about making much, much more of Jesus. And I want to challenge you to dwell upon him, to learn about him, to intentionally discipline yourself to read his word. Not just that, but to continually gather with his people. If you're a two out of four week church attender, a three out of four week church attender, there might be a very good reason for that, but there probably isn't. Commit yourself to gathering, to reading, to growing, to understanding Jesus. But I also want to challenge you 
to live humbly in the light of the great truth that we've heard. You see, we've just heard the message that for anyone who doesn't know Jesus when they die, they're going to go to hell. What is it that stops you and I being more involved in evangelism? It's pride. We're terrified of being made to look foolish. We worry about our reputations. We worry about what people will think about us, and so we say nothing. But my dear friends, let the reality of God's wrath propel us into action. That is the destiny of the people we love who don't know Jesus. So what can we do? Next week, we have Easter, Friday, Sunday. Easy invites. We have the Life Series starting up in Term 2. We have church every Sunday. My friends, humble yourself before God. Commit yourself to sharing His Word. And finally, I'd want to challenge you today, if you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you today to make today the day when you humble yourself, you stop running from God, stop pretending you are God, and bend your knee down before the truth of God. At the moment, God's wrath does belong on you, but you can be saved. How? Well, in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray on behalf of non-Christian people here who want to put their faith in Jesus. And I want to challenge you to have that prayer, to say that prayer. To put your faith in Jesus. And if that's not you yet, if you're not there yet, I want to challenge you to keep coming back. Don't be offended. Don't be turned away. Keep coming back and grappling with these truths. Why don't I close our time together in prayer? And as I said, if you're in that position with God, I'll just ask you to pray silently along in your heart and your soul as I pray. Let's pray. Father, I've spent my lifetime rejecting you. I know I am not worthy to be called your child. I know I am not worthy of your love. And yet I have it. Father, I'm sorry for what I've done. Forgive me. I understand that Jesus died and rose from the dead and doing so took my punishment I understand that he now reigns Lord help me help me to be a Christian to put my faith and trust in you and give me the courage and the strength I need to continue living with Jesus not just as my saviour but as my king and I pray this in Jesus name Amen Well, friends, if you have prayed that prayer, I'd love to encourage you to uh, let us know by using the Next Steps card. You can tick out and find out more about Jesus there. Just leave it on your seat. Um, No one will see it except one of the pastors, uh, and one of us will be in touch. I think we're going to sing.